Happy Easter. It's our, as a church, we're five and a half years old, but it's our sixth year as a church family to celebrate Easter together. A few weeks ago on March the 30th, as a church family, we uh, celebrated three years in this building, but it's our fourth year to celebrate Easter together here in our new and permanent home. Do you remember, Jeff, how we did it last year? We had two services at the same time. They were both at, at 1045, one in the gym and one here. And so in the gym, we had the sermon first, followed by songs of Easter celebration. And then here we sang and then had the sermon. And they drove me over from the gym. It's like 150 yards. They drove me from the gym here in a golf cart. And I declined the golf cart because I didn't want to feel like, you know, prima donna, you know, special, kingly, whatever. I'd rejected the golf cart. They said, no, no, get in because it's raining. And, uh, and so I hopped in and the golf cart, we're so low budget here, the golf cart drove at a speed uh, slower than I walk. And, uh, but Jeff had him in here, was delaying, I think, the singing, the instrumentals. If you were here, you didn't know it. But anyway, I've never preached two sermons so back-to-back uh, -back like that one, but a great Sunday and love what God is doing. We had such a good group in the 930 service that I went ahead and pitched an idea for Easter 2018. You ready? An Easter sunrise service right here. How about that? 6.30 or so? What do you think? Yeah. Okay, 11 o'clock. A lot of slackers in here, a lot of low achievers, <laughs> 11 o'clock, uh, 9.30 was fired up about it. But it's just beautiful in here. Sometimes, you know, I work here. This is uh, Monday through Friday for me, and I work here. And sometimes in the morning, I'll come in here and pray and see the sun spilling through the stained glass there. And it's really beautiful. Most mornings, I'm moody and irritable, and just, you know, nobody wants to be around me. But some mornings, I do that, and it's just gorgeous. So there's an idea. Let's let it percolate. We'll pray about it. Easter sunrise service next year. Jeff knows I'm in trouble. Um, a man is driving the back roads of Big Sky Country in Montana. He sees a sign in a yard of a shanty, broken down house. The yard, the, the sign says this in the yard. It says, talking dog for sale. He rings the bell, the man, the owner in the house says dogs in the back. He goes to the backyard and he sees a lab. And he was thinking what you and I would be thinking. Okay, he's going to really appear foolish. The joke's on him. But he, he just out loud said to the lab, do you talk? Yep. The man, it takes him a minute to overcome his shock. He says, well, tell me your story. The dog said, well, I, I learned to talk when I was really young, and I wanted to help our government, so I went to the CIA, and in no time, they had me flying around from country to country. I was meeting with world leaders and spies sitting in really important rooms. No one thought a dog could eavesdrop. I became one of the most important figures in American um, in work in, in the CIA, in central intelligence. Said, but after eight years, I grew weary of all the travel. So I, I took a job at an airport. I helped people, helped the airport with security, uh, discovering suspicious bags and people. And I helped thwart some terrorist plots. I was awarded a lot of medals, but I got married. We had a mess of puppies. I retired. <laughs> the guy's amazed. He, he goes into the house and says, how much for your dog? What are you going to charge me? And the man, uh, the owner says, $10. The guy goes, $10? Why? says, because he's a liar and he's never been out of the yard. <laughs> There's something in you. There's something in you that's innate. It's inherent. It's built in you. But you want to believe a story. We like good stories, don't we? We like things. We just want them to be true. We want to live outside of the mundane of our world. And we just want a good story. Nod your head on Easter Sunday if you believe that. We want a good story. Now, let me ask you. Because we're going to talk about the Easter story, you know that. But let me ask you, have you ever believed in or bought into a conspiracy theory? Uh, 
the, the moon landing was staged. President Obama's birth certificate is fake. The 9-11 terrorist attacks were an inside job. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald pulled the trigger in the assassination of JFK, but it was actually the work of the CIA or the KGB. Tupac is not dead. Elvis is alive. Maybe that flying saucer really did land in that field in Roswell, New Mexico. There's just something in us, right? We find conspiracy theories, we find them to be fun and fascinating, but they're just too far-fetched, right? And so we come this morning, I think, many of us excited, many of us just ready, ready to celebrate. To be honest, I'm no better than anyone. Trust me, I'm the pastor and my sins are many, but I come today ready to celebration. The gym at 930, so powerful to worship a risen Savior. I just believe that it's true. But for some of us, maybe many of us, we live between this suspension, and I do at times, the suspension between celebration and just maybe being cynical. Because after all, it's a story, right? It's fun and it's fascinating, but is it far-fetched? Here's what I want to do this morning, is I want to establish a common baseline for everybody. For every astute thinker, Here's what is historically true. Now, not everybody believes, of course, obviously, that Jesus rose from the dead. But here's what every notable thinking scholar has come to common agreement on. A man named Jesus lived. He was executed by the Romans. He was buried. And on the third day where his body lay, he was no longer there. And so, the most important question that we can ponder and think about and base our life upon is what? What happened and how did it happen? In these four weeks leading up to Easter, if you've been here or been able to listen online, we have looked at the meaning of the cross. And each Sunday, Nick Crawford and I put one word out in front of you. It was first propitiation, then it was redemption, and then justification, then reconciliation. Today, of course, our word is going to be resurrection. No suspense there, right? And each Sunday, we opened up our Bibles to a passage, and we stood as we read the Bible together. Today, on Easter Sunday, I want to put up a verse on the screen, and it's from Peter in 2 Peter, when the early Jesus followers were really taking root and bearing fruit. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not a conspiracy theory. This actually happened. In John, in John's account of the gospel, John says that Peter ran to the tomb. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, outran him. He got there fast. Isn't that just like a dude, right? Even the disciples are like, you know, I, he ran a 4.8, I ran a 4.3. I mean, Jesus loves us both, but I'm faster than Peter. But they were there. And Peter comes face to face with a place where a body was supposed to be, and it wasn't there. And this morning, I want to share with you on two different, um, two different ends of the spectrum, two important things for us to consider about the Easter story, about its truthfulness and veracity, about its credibility. The first is historical evidence. And secondly, it's personal experience. And when it comes to historical evidence, I want to share with you three things, and I'm going to use illustrations so that you won't fall asleep in this beautiful, nicely cooled sanctuary. The first bit of historical evidence that I want to share with you is the people who told the story. And then secondly, the story that they told. And then thirdly, when, that's important, when the story got told 
and when it got written down. First, the people who told the story. The first evangelists were women. You hear that, men? The first evangelists were women. What was the story that these men and women that they told? What was their motive? Let's, let's look for a second at motive. Again, co- baseline, common agreement among all thinking people. Jesus lived. There was a man named Jesus. He lived. He was executed by the Romans. He was buried. And on the third day, he was not there. So what happened? Was the body stolen? If it was stolen, was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it the disciples? None of that adds up. What happened then? So let's look at the motives of the people like Peter who told this Easter story. There was a movie that came out in 2003 directed by a guy you've heard of, Steven Spielberg. And the main actors were Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. The movie you see is Catch Me If You Can. It was based on a true story of a man named Frank Abengale. And Frank was not a good-looking guy, but he got played by Leonardo DiCaprio. That's pretty cool, huh? I'm, I'm just waiting for Hollywood to make a movie of my life. My wife tells me it'll be played, my part will be played by Gene Hackman. Or the guy from Breaking Bad. One is 83 years old. Laugh at my pain, it's fine. And in this movie, based on this true story, in real life, this, here was a man who went to chase Manhattan Bank one day and he saw his father get rejected for a loan that ended up being a downward spiral for them economically in many, many ways. I mean, when a man who is created with ambition can't succeed and experiences failure and depression, it's hard on a family. And this was a story of of this young man named Frank. And so he became a con artist. He was, to many people, and he milked people out of millions of dollars. And before he was 19 years old, he had conned people out of all this money, uh, making them believe that he was a doctor, a lawyer, and a pilot. He had never been to medical school, law school, or flight school. But he became very successful in his life. Now, here's what Catch Me If You Can illustrates to us this morning. When you lie, you always tell a lie that benefits you. Would you agree? First of all, just nod your head if you you, sometimes you lie. I mean, I think we all lie, right? Let's just go ahead. Church people don't deny, you know, we deny this. But we, we all lie to some extent. And when you lie, every lie that you've told, you tell that lie to benefit you. Either to make yourself look good, to gain an advantage, or to avoid trouble. Notice the lie in this true story, catch me if you can. Notice the lies that Frank Abigail did not tell. He did not say, I'm a drug dealer or a, you know, a sexual pervert. He didn't claim to be that because what would that have got for him? If you're a drug dealer or a sex offender, what does that get you? Isolation, ridicule, contempt, prison. You don't avoid trouble. You take it on. You relate this to the Easter story. What benefits? would this give the disciples to lie? Do you die for a lie? Not just the motive behind the people who told the story, but they were able to maintain this. Now think about it. Is it a lie? If it's a lie, would they be able to maintain it? You recognize these words. The criminal justice system is separated into two distinct groups the police who investigate crimes, and the district attorneys who prosecute them. These are their stories. There's that bass part. That's law and order, right? And the show, the show follows the story of that introduction. 
The, the first part of the show is the investigators, the detectives, who do what? They follow leads and they pursue suspects. And then there's the courtroom, there's the drama, there's the prosecution. And when they're following these suspects, oftentimes it's one suspect, but sometimes it's multiple suspects. And you know how this plays out, right? It plays out on Law & Order. It's condensed to a, to a short program, but in real life, it's largely true. When there are multiple suspects, what do the detectives do? They take those guys. Let's say they're guys, and there's two of them. They take those guys into different rooms. And I always picture you know, a detective with his elbow on his knee and his, his foot on a chair. I can't, I can't do it, but you know, he's looking at the guy, and he says... All right, you tell me what happened, and I'll talk to the DA, and we'll cut a deal. And in the next room, he's saying, hey, you tell me what happened, and we'll talk to the DA, and we'll cut a deal. And invariably, each and every time, somebody talks. Because what are they looking to do? They're looking to pin the crime on their accomplice. That's what you do. That's what the motive, avoid trouble, look good. Gain an advantage, it's all there, but to maintain that. And for the disciples, y'all, these were real people. These were real men in a real time in history who faced much more barbaric torture and imprisonment, mistreatment and martyrdom. Would they have done this for that? Do you know how the disciples died? The end of their life, John got the best deal probably. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified. They were beheaded. They were burned upside down in oil. They, would they die for this lie? And would they be able, when they're on the cusp of that, or on the precipice, on the edge of this torture, would they be able to maintain a lie? Chuck Colson a former Richard Nixon aide. Any of you recognize the name Chuck Colson? Some of you, our church is so young, some of you don't even recognize the name Richard Nixon. <laughs> Richard Nixon was a president, and he faced impeachment over some crime, some cover-up. And his aides, his closest associates, hatched a scheme. They said, we will create a lie, and then we will maintain the lie. What was harder to do? Maintain the lie. What's harder for you to do? You better not answer this because you don't want to look good, right? Is it harder to create the lie or is it harder to maintain the lie? And Chuck Colson says, John Dean, if you know the story, this is a Watergate scandal. John Dean was the first to sing. He was the first to crack. He was the first to start talking. And others followed suit, right? Because you're looking to protect yourself. You're looking to gain an advantage. You're looking to get out of trouble. That's what humans do. And Chuck Colson in prison finds Jesus as his savior and he talks about the intellectual pursuit of the savior of this man Jesus and how looking at his story and the story of these 12 assistants of Richard Nixon and how they created a lie behind closed doors in the Washington Beltway and they couldn't maintain the lie for more than three weeks he said bright educated modern men couldn't do it for more than three weeks and I look back at 12 powerless first-century Palestinians wouldn't they have broken would they have been able to maintain this lie the motive is not there trust me the motive to lie is not there and would they have been able to maintain it there's the people who told the story and there's the story that was told and in this story I want to tell you that there's a lot of details 
There's a lot of details in a story. Now, if you're going to lie, how do you lie? When you lie, when I lie, I don't lie, y'all lie. But when y'all lie, right, you do a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama because what does drama do? It kind of like it, it, take, it gets you emotional and then you say, oh, 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 sorry. Oh, so it's their fault. Oh, you know, there's a lot of drama. High drama, low detail, right? High drama, low detail because the more detail you give, the more trouble you get into. Do you feel me on this? Here's a picture of a woman that no one's going to recognize. I want to tell you about her. Her name is Marilee Jones. I don't exult in this, but I'm just telling you what really happened. She was a longtime admissions counselor at MIT. MIT stands for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's why they call it MIT. And it is arguably the most prestigious engineering school in America, second only to Mississippi State. <laughs> and Marilee Jones got her job by the way, it's competitive. It's the most competitive engineering school to get into in America. 92% of the entrants have a math score, SAT score over 700. And she is a key determining factor in who gets admitted into MIT's engineering program. How does she get her job, her expertise, her experience, her education? She earned degrees from three very prestigious universities, or did she? In reality, Mary Lou Jones never got a college degree. Her biggest mistake in telling a lie, she gave details. On her resume, she listed the three universities, the degrees that she earned, and she gave the emails and phone numbers of references. And so when someone got suspicious, what did they do? They didn't worry about any drama. There really was no drama. They went to the details. They went to the details. And the devil, they say, is in the details. And this story, y'all, this story has so many details. Look at Mark 15 and Mark's account of the gospel. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He was waiting. He went boldly. He was very bright and educated. When it says he was a member of the council, do you know what that means? It means he was a member of the Sanhedrin council. That was sort of the, the, the ancient um, Jewish supreme court. There were 71 members, 71 men. Joseph was one of them. In other words, this was made up with a lot of pesky fact checkers. You know any of those? Did you watch the debates back in 2016 last year? leading up to the presidential election. And it's like, you know, fact check, fact check, fact check, fact check, fact check. People fact checking the fact checkers, you know. CNN went nuts on Donald Trump, like fact check, fact check. Just a whole bunch of pesky fact checkers. Imagine what it's like to, to preach. Imagine what it's like to be me and to preach at Fondren Church. I have a joke, and I'd say it's a joke. It's, it's quite true that almost none of you correct me biblically. But if it's history or pop culture or music, I'll get an occasional email. Not often because I'm not wrong often. But when I am, <laughs> you pesky fact checkers are out there, right? And you let me know about it. A few weeks ago, talking about redemption, I asked you to go to the city, the ancient city of Ephesus, where it's, it's a commerce city and a port and a hub city and trade. And everything's being bought and sold, including people, including slaves. And I, I talked about America, colonial America. And I said the phrase, I wasn't on my notes. It wasn't what I memorized. I was in the moment. I was being extemporaneous. And I said, would Abraham Lincoln in Congress passed the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, do you know a very educated young lady at the 930 service emailed me by 2 o'clock that afternoon and said, Robert, really enjoying the series Understanding the Cross as it's preparing us for Easter. But I'm a history buff. And when you said today that 
right, that the Congress was involved. They actually weren't involved, right? So I got a fact check. It's just, it's, but here's the thing. It's what I want, right? It's what I need. In, in Acts 17, Paul said there's the Thessalonican church and the Berean church. And it says the Berean church was more noble than those in Thessalonica, Acts 17, 11, because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They didn't just sit and soak and take someone's word for it. They checked it out. And you know that was common in that culture, and it was very, very common in the Sanhedrin. This story had tons of details. Consider this from 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It was our Easter text a few years ago. After that, he, Jesus, appeared to more than whom, how many? 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. They were gathered together, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul is saying 500 people, hundreds are still alive. He's, he's, it's almost like he's, saying, he's so sure of this, he's saying, check it out. Go track down those people and find out, find out. The story included lots of details. It also included embarrassing facts. The story has embarrassing facts. Here's a picture of something. You tell me what it is. Any Texans in the house? Remember the... Emily Harden was in the 930 service. She's a Texas A&M girl. She was the first to boldly say that's the Alamo. Way back in Texas history, 5,000 Mexicans surrounded this building. 180 Texas freedom fighters, they were called, were inside, led by James Harden, William Travis, and Davy Crockett. And these men died a valiant death. 180 fighting 5,000. They fought for freedom. They fought for Texas. They fought for their country. But the facts seem to indicate there's a good chance that Davy Crockett didn't die that day in the Alamo. Don Kilbore in his book, How Did Davy Die, offers convincing evidence that Davy Crockett was captured, he was taken away alive, and he was executed later by a Mexican firing squad. In addition to that, Dan Kilgore and others have written about the personal lives of these men. One was very, very promiscuous and had syphilis. One was running from debt. One was battling with alcoholism, faults, failures, struggles. No one, no Texas authorian disputes these things. They just don't want them included in the legend. They don't want them to be a part of the story, right? Leave that stuff out because that's what happens to legend. It gets larger than life. You don't, you don't talk about people's faults and stuff. It's giant people taking massive steps of progress and doing noble, good, valiant things. Consider the writers of the New Testament. The story they told had lots of details and it had embarrassing facts. Do you know that Jesus not only told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Some of you said that on Lakeland Drive, coming to church on Easter Sunday, right? You passed that car that you'd been wanting to pass, and you said, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus called Peter Satan, and the, the disciples were cowards. When, when the hour counted, when they were needed most, they scattered. Jesus in the garden, when he needed emotional support at his darkest hour, he asked them to pray, and what did they do? They slept. Jesus, the perfect, sinless, blameless Son of God, lived in human 
fleshly clothes. He had an earthly tent. And what people thought would be a conquering king was a crucified Messiah. And y'all, he died a humiliating death. Not the stuff of legend. And it's why I submit this to you this morning. The gospel writers did not remove embarrassing facts because they were not crafting a legend. They were writing history. The people who told the story. The story that they told. And lastly, when the story was told. This is really important because there's a lot of ideas being debated and dissected and thrown out there like it's some historical fact. Oh, listen to me though. Listen up to what you're about to hear. You ever played the secret game, you know, in the early Jewish culture was an oral culture so it did take time things were passed down orally before they were written down and it's common among people who attack Christianity and the resurrection to say that oh it was just you know centuries years and years and years later and it got changed and fact was replaced with legend and myth but I submit to you today and would argue it in any intellectual environment any academic forum that the gospels and acts and the letters of Paul were written closely after the death of Christ. How do you date it? How do you know? I want to share with you something so fascinating and compelling. The key is, can we prove when Acts was written? When was it written? Who wrote Acts? Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Luke wrote Acts. And in writing Acts, he leaves out two very important events in history at the time the fall of Jerusalem and the death of the Apostle Paul now pretend with me for a moment by way of illustration that you write a history of the World Trade Center all right you with me so you write a history of the World Trade Center and in your history of the World Trade Center you give statistics because statistics go to the head you share stories because stories go to the heart and in your uh, sharing you're writing a history you talk about how the World Trade Center is made up of seven buildings and the two that gain all the attention should garner the attention it's the two t- twin towers they both rise from the ground at 110 stories 50,000 plus people work there every day 200,000 people visit the World Trade Center every single day just to gawk just to learn just to just to experience it it's so large and impressive that the World Trade Center has its own zip code 10048 you share some statistics like that, then you share some stories. Well, who works there? What kind of view do they have? What do they do in the World Trade Center building? What line of work are they in? You share stories of all the people from all the different nations who come to America and take time to come to the World Trade Center, and there you end your story. You've just written a history of the World Trade Center. Question, did you write your history of the World Trade Center before September 11th, 2001? What's ev- you get my question? What's everybody in the room? How are you going to answer that? Did you write that story before September 11th? 2000? Yes, yes, yeah. Folks in the balcony, yes, yeah. Everybody, yes. Because you mentioned nothing in your history, in your history of the World Trade Center, about that fateful day. Jerusalem. Now, we know about New York. We know about the World Trade Centers. We know that 3,000 Americans horrifically lost their lives that day primarily in Manhattan. When the temple fell in A.D. 70, what Jesus predicted in Luke 21, when the temple fell in Jerusalem, tens of thousands of Jewish people lost their lives. In Luke, in Acts, Luke writing Acts, not once does he mention 
the fall, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Not once. You see what I'm saying? And so there, there we see a timeline. There we began to understand. Here's what Jesus said, prophesying about this in, in Luke. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies... See, he said this was going to happen and it was only going to be a generation or so removed. You will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So impressive that that was fulfilled in AD 70. Pretty much spot on when Jesus said it would be. Jesus died in AD 30s. The temple of Jerusalem fell in AD 70. No mention of it in the book of Acts. So we can conclude, no mention of the death of Paul, no mention of the fall of Jerusalem, reasonable, compelling to conclude when these works were written. And when they were written is very important. People were alive. Stories were being told. Details and embarrassing facts. Check the motives of those telling. Check the, the numerous people, one after the other. But beyond historical evidence, there's personal experience. Crumpled up in my pocket is something that I want to read to you this morning. What I read, I believe. What I'm about to read to you is what's true in my life. Jesus is in the life-changing business. From the very beginning, all kinds of people were drawn to him and would come to him. Satisfied people, messed up people, lepers, and injured people, inspired people, forgotten people, despised people, prostitutes, tax collectors, admired people, wealthy people, religious leaders. There was something about this man, Jesus, that made their hearts cave in and then be born again. A proud, vindictive, violent, arrogant, self-occupied religious leader named Saul of Tarsus was traveling down the road when suddenly he had a vision of Jesus. As a matter of historical record, he, Saul, became Paul, a different man with a different name whose mind, writings, love for people, and self-sacrificial gift of his life to the world were so compelling that human minds are still fascinated by him 2,000 years later. People devote their lives to studying what he wrote. How did that life get changed? The evidence of lives changed by Jesus is so abundant that the full story can never be told. It can never be matched, not by any culture, by any book, by any program, by any hero. Now, most of you know what I've taught about faith and science. I don't believe you put your brain in a bucket when you come to church. And I believe that faith and science are in so many ways very compatible. But hear now what he says. I've never heard anybody say, one day I realized there was no God no one behind reality, no life after death. I realized existence is a meaningless accident begun by chance and destined for oblivion, and it changed my life. I used to be addicted to alcohol, but now the law of natural selection has set me free. I used to be greedy, but now the story of the Big Bang Theory has made me generous. I used to be afraid, but now random chance has made me brave. I've never heard the story of an accidental, meaningless universe changing a life like that. Now, I have, heard, I have heard people say they were oppressed by the form of faith they followed, and they felt a sense of liberation when they didn't believe it was true anymore. Amen. 
But I have never seen anyone receive the power to live this kind of life and become the kind of person he or she wants to be by hearing that there's no story behind the universe. I have never heard anyone say, now I have found a meaningless existence from a meaningless reality. But Jesus, he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And this morning when it comes to personal experience, I stand before you today and my mama's in the house. My mom is on the front row. She only comes to Fondra Church on Christmas and Easter. But my mom can tell you that my sins are many. My wife can tell you that my sins are many. But I stand in front of you today, in front of the people who know me best and have known me the longest, and tell you that he's changed my life. My mom can tell you how I love people, but she can also tell you how I stayed in my room as a teenager at times and read and memorized large portions of the Bible. How I was fascinated by the life of Jesus, compelled by his teachings. And when I was 15 years old, I began an experiment, the Jesus experiment. I began to say, Jesus, are you real? And is this true? And I'm going to live your way. So I stand here today, and I'm with Peter. I'm with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, according to his great mercy. Are you thankful for his mercy today? He has caused us to be born again, what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter, when he went to the tomb that day, John outran him, so he was kind of, his pride was hurt, but he went to the tomb. He was a depressed, discouraged doubter. But he went to a place, face to face, saw an empty tomb, and he became one of the most important messengers. Jesus would pray in their presence in John 17, Lord, I pray for their unity. I pray they would love one another because what matters, nothing but love. I pray that they would love one another, that the world, because of their love, would believe. But I don't just pray for them. I pray for those who would believe on me through them. That's you. And I stand in front of you today and say that that's me. Jesus is real. And from personal experience, I can tell you, he is risen. His words are true. His life is matchless. And he can offer a new beginning, a clean slate, a fresh start. What's my cardinal sin? You think I'm going to tell y'all? I don't have a bunch of junk like a lot of you, so I'll tell you my stuff. No. My cardinal sin is people-pleasing. I have for too long cared about what other people think. Paul, when he was liberated by the good news of the gospel, said in Galatians 1.10, a whole letter to a church in Galatia about freedom, he said, if I seek to please men, I will not be able to please Christ. So every Sunday morning, whether it's in the gym or in here, I look at the screen and I look at the heavens and I check out the stained glass and sometimes when Susan will let me, I'll hold her hand. And I don't look back because I don't need to worry about success and if this place is full. I need to be faithful to the one who loves me. And whether there's five people or 700 people in this sanctuary, I need to do what God has called me to do. My job is not to fill this place. It's to fill this place and to let him fill me. And in my darkest moments, I'll think one critic is a chorus. And I'll think one person leaving means everybody is leaving. And all of a sudden, I think things are falling apart. 
And you know what Jesus is doing? It's been a slow work. It's been a painful work because of my sin and my darkness. But I realize that I'm loved and accepted by him. That I don't have to live in fear anymore and I don't have to be a slave to other people's opinions. In fact, I'm going to say this, I don't even work for you. I'm called to follow him. And as I follow him, ministry is what happens behind me when I do. Oh, the peace. The peace that he gives. It's a living hope. I love to talk to anybody and everybody about historical evidence. Man, that fires me up. I spent some time in my days with Campus Crusade traveling with a guy named Josh McDowell. Anybody of you know Josh McDowell? I mean, I spent a lot of time with that. messed me up forever in a good way. I mean, just brain exploding. More than a carpenter. Evidence that demands a verdict. Like, I knew that guy. I traveled with him. Man, that fires me up. The historical evidence. But I stand today with personal experience and telling to you what Jesus can do with.